Last week we began a sermon series on anger called Overcoming Anger. And last week the, the main thrust of the sermon was trying to understand the heart of anger. We looked at James chapter 4 to see that the, that the heart of anger, the roots of anger, is our passions, our desires that wage war within. And when these desires become great desires or ruling desires over desires, they become demands. And when those demands are, are either denied or delayed or taken away from us, then we get angry. And so really the, the root of our anger is really desires that are misplaced. And then when those desires aren't fulfilled, then we render a judgment. Anger is really a judgment saying that is not fair. That's not right. You should not do that. That was a good thing that I wanted. And often those desires are for good things, but they become demands for good things. I mentioned last week, Robert Jones in his book, Outreading Anger, defined anger this way as a whole person active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. Okay, it involves our, our whole being. It's, it's an active response. It's something that we do. It's not something that we have or that, that's ingrained within us, but something that we do in response to a negative moral judgment against what we perceive as evil. Okay, and we see that God is angry because his perceptions of evil are completely just. And so he is angry at evil, at the wicked, but we so often, our anger is unrighteous in that we're anger, angry at things that have um, not fulfilled our own desires. Not God's desires, but rather our own. We're also reminded that from birth, that we are experts at anger. From the youngest of ages, throwing temper tantrums all the way to today. So anger is something that is difficult to overcome because we're so good at it. And we're so good at, at expressing it in a variety of different ways. I mentioned last week how the goal of this series is not anger management. Okay, just like our goal of the Christian life is not sin management. We desire to, to uproot, to eradicate, to destroy the roots of anger, to put our desires in their proper place. The goal also is not the removal of all kinds of emotion, not just the fruit of angry hearts and just a stoicism, a, a blank face. A, I'm just going to bottle this in because expressing anger is right. We want to deal with the heart issue. That's what we want to get at especially here this morning. So last week we looked at just the identifying those roots of anger, identifying those desires that then lead to anger when those desires aren't fulfilled. And today what we're going to look at is what do we do once we've identified those desires? If this week, if you filled out that sheet that had three columns, you know, the situation where I got angry, my behavior, and then what were the desires? What was I wanting that was denied or taken away from me? What was, what was it that I was craving that caused me to be anger, angry? And now once we identified some of those desires, how exactly do we, do we put those desires in their proper place? Because if, if you fill that out and the desires and the things that have caused you anger in this past week were probably things that were good, good things that you're desiring. Whether that's quiet, whether that's um, just, just doing your job at work, whether that's obedient children, those are good desires to have. But so often they're the cause for our anger because those desires become elevated and misplaced. So how do we actually deal with those things once we've identified some of those desires? How do we change? How do we begin to get rid of anger that's caused by these ruling desires? We're going to talk about a hardworking husband this morning uh, throughout this sermon. So it, consider consider hardworking husband. This hardworking husband comes home and what he wants from his family is not much. He wants to come home and he wants his wife to say, hi, honey. And he wants his children to say, hi, daddy. 
Okay, but he comes in the door and, and he comes as a big occasion. The door's locked. He comes in. It's dark where he comes in and he, he goes in the room. He finds the kids playing and they just keep on playing. They just ignore that daddy's in the room. And then he goes in the office. His wife's on the computer and she looks up and says, oh, it's you. And then back to what she was doing. And, and so at that point, that hardworking daddy loses it. You know, the briefcase gets slammed down on the table and he begins to yell an explanation. If you can call it an explanation, he begins to yell and demand that he gets shown some respect, that they acknowledge his presence. He's been working hard all day and this is what he comes home to. He deserves better than this. Okay. And so there's some times when he's come home and he hasn't blown up. But he's been bothered by this, and so he simply burned on the inside, and he's retreated down the basement, or he's just, okay, forget about this, I'm going out with friends tonight. And after one of these episodes, he tells one of his friends, confides in him what's going on, and his, his friend is a Christian friend, he says, that's not right what you're doing. It's not right. You shouldn't yell at your wife and your kids. You should speak, speak kindly and gently to them. And so this man, this hardworking Christian daddy, hangs his head and he realizes, yeah, that's right. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be yelling at them. I should be kind and gentle to them. The friend continues, and you also shouldn't retreat. You shouldn't bottle it in. You, you, need, to, you, need, to, you need to talk. You, you can't, just, can't just run away from your problems. That's also not Christian. And he realizes, yeah, no, I've been doing that too. That's not right. And his friend says, and, you're, and also, if I may, you're receiving this well. If I may, you, you shouldn't be gossiping. Because we Christians, we call it sharing or confiding. Uh, but it's gossiping. And he goes, you shouldn't be gossiping. You should be telling your wife these things. You should be, should be talking to her about that. And that's also wrong. And so this guy is really deflated now. Yeah, you're right. That's wrong. I, I need to repent. I need to ask forgiveness. I need to ask God for forgiveness. I need to ask my wife for forgiveness. This man, it's broken over a sin. Now, what do you think about that Christian friend's counsel to that man? Was that, was that, was that good? Was that a good way to deal with that, with that anger that he was experiencing with his family? What do you think? Was it, was it good Christian counsel? It sounded pretty good. It was received well. But I think as we're going to look today, it was incomplete. His counsel dealt primarily with the fruit of anger and not with the root of anger. Because that dad is still desiring respect. He's still de- desiring appreciation. He's still desiring recognition from his family. Those desires are still there and they're still ruling his heart. And so it's only going to be a matter of time when he comes home, when he doesn't get the appreciation he thinks he deserves, and boom, he's going to blow up again. Because the root issue was never dealt with. He demands appreciation and respect. It's grown from a good desire into a demand. So what's the solution to these heart issues? Okay, there's going to be two texts we're going to look at. We're going to apply it here to this hardworking husband. Two texts. And two points, two R's we're going to look at today. The first text we're going to turn to is back to James 4. Okay, we're going to finish James chapter 4. And we're going to see that repentance is that first R that must follow our anger when it's been pointed out. So James chapter 4, if you turn back there with me. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and our ushers will get you one. If you have a Bible like mine, it's on page 1012. James chapter 4. Last week, we looked at the first three verses. I want to read that to you again here today. And then we're going to see the scripture's prescription to anger that is introduced in James chapter four. So James chapter four, first three verses says this. 
What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you hate. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Okay, so we we looked last week how the root issue are these passions, quarrels, fights, anger, bitterness, depression, all flows from these passions that are misplaced in our hearts. So that's what he's getting at. This inner man is really what is the cause of anger. And then when these things are denied or taken away, we can't have them, then we make a judgment. That's not right. That's not fair. I deserve that. I should have that. And we get angry. Whether that's visible anger, whether that's internal anger, silent treatment, whatever, we get angry when those things are not given to us. So what does James say? Let's continue reading in verse 4 to 10 now. Verse 4. This might shock you where he turns, but he says in verse 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Okay, interesting text. Maybe reading that, like, what does that have to do with anger and the roots of anger and these over-desires, these demands that have developed in our heart? What does that have to do with it? Okay, let's go through this. In verse 4 and 5, he starts off by saying, you adulterous people. What a stunning rebuke. You know, isn't that, what a shock. Here, here are these quarrels, there's, there's anger, these passions that are, that are running rampant among the congregation. These are Christians. And he goes, you adulterous people. You're idolaters. You're, you're enemies of God. That's the way you're behaving in your anger. You're, you're enemies of God. And so how do we go from anger and quarrels to this rebuke of adultery, to be unfaithful to God? What's the, what's the relation here? Why does he go here? Let me try to illustrate what's going on. When we have these desires, and, and we're talking about desires for good things, when we have these desires, and those, these desires continue to grow in their importance to us, where they become over-desires, ruling desires, they become demands. Essentially, they become commands. So no longer are we about God's kingdom, God's law, and God's rule. Now these over-desires have become such that it is now about our kingdom. This is my kingdom. This is, this is about my rule. And these, these are my laws. These are my demands. And so you can think about Things like a desire to get to work on time, a desire for promotion, a desire for obedient children, desire for a peaceful home. These are good desires, but they can grow into demands, essentially commands. We can make ourselves like God. 
Concerning drivers on the road, if, if, if your desires get to work on time, maybe you have a command written on your heart that says this, thou shalt not drive into my lane and slow down in front of me. Okay, that's a, that's a, that's a command that we have decreed like God has decreed a command. And when someone defies that command, our wrath is going to be shown to show our displeasure. Or maybe concerning your, your boss. You know, your desire for promotion at work has, has elevated itself to a demand, essentially a command. You're now God at work and, and you have a command like this. Thou shalt not promote a colleague who has not worked as long as I have. Okay, and if, if your boss does that, mm, he's going to feel your fury and your rage. That's not fair to become commands. Or perhaps concerning your children, you have this command written on your heart. Thou shalt sit quietly at all times without making a mess. <laughs> You're going to be disappointed on that command. Concerning your home, thou shalt ensure that I rest comfortably between 7 o'clock and 9 p.m. Okay? And if someone gets in the way of that, they're going to feel your anger. So these, these demands have essentially become commands. We've made ourselves God. We've made ourselves, this is about our kingdom. This is about our law. And you see how James is saying, you adulterous people. You're enemies of God. You've made yourself just like God. You've undercut his law. You're no longer living for his rule, for his kingdom, for his law. You've made your own. You're adulterers. You're unfaithful. You're idolaters. And so our commands may be different than these. But we must realize that when we have these kinds of commands, these demands in our life, we've set ourselves up to be like God in our own kingdom. We've made ourselves enemies of God. This is pride. This is worldliness. This is what James is saying. This is why you're worldly. Because look at our world. Fighting for their kingdom. Fighting for their rights. This is my rights. It's all about rights today. It's all about what's mine. He's like, that's adultery. That's idolatry. That's worldliness. That's against God. It's not who we're supposed to be as Christians. We're supposed to be about who God is. About his kingdom. About his law. About his rule. And to submit to that. And so we have to see our ruling desires really as an affront to God, as a form of idolatry, as a form of adultery, unfaithfulness, making ourselves enemies of God, gross rebellion because of these over-desires in our life. So what's the solution? Okay, We need to recognize that. We need to, to take that rebuke from James. But then what's the solution? He turns to that and calls for repentance. So let's read again verse 6 to 10, how he describes repentance when it comes here to angry passions. Verse 6, but, he said, okay, after this rebuke, but he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, okay, repent. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Repentance. He's calling us to repentance. When we have these over-desires, these demands that have come up in our hearts, he's calling us to repent. To be humble. Now, at this point, you're probably thinking, all right, I know I need to repent. I know I need to change my desires. How do I do it? I, I, I just can't just flip these things off. I just, I just can't will myself to repent. These, these are desires that I have. How do, how do I get these in control? I've tried to do this. 
I can't just simply change these desires. Well, I want you to notice something very, very important from this passage. Okay? Very important. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. It says, but he. Okay? But he gives more grace. It also says, therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It says in verse 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. It says in verse 8, draw near to God. Repentance here is defined not so much as a how-to. How do I do it? It's described so much more as a whom-to. Who do I turn to? You turn to God. And it's a matter of, okay, we can't change our desires. We can't change our hearts, but we're going to run to God and ask him to change our hearts. He's the one who has the grace. Not only grace to forgive our angry hearts, but grace to change them. Sanctifying grace, transforming grace, enabling grace. And so we need to turn to God. So this text is calling us to, to submit ourselves to God. So it's not so much a how-to, but a whom-to. Turning from sin, yes, definitely, but turning to God and to His forgiveness and grace and mercy is the key to this text. Now look at verse 6 again. It talks a lot about grace. God gives more grace. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. What's grace? Grace is undeserved, unmerited. In fact, it's ill-deserved favor of God. Undeserved, unmerited favor of God. You didn't earn this. In fact, you, you deserve the exact opposite of God's favor towards you. God is going to give grace. And what does it mean when someone is at war with his passions? God is going to forgive. God forgives an angry heart. God forgives a heart that's hostile to him, that is idolatrous and adulterous and has made these commands that go against God's law and against his kingdom. God will forgive. We need to realize that. We need God's forgiving grace. And not only that, we need his transforming and sanctifying grace. Okay, and what does it look like to turn to God? What does it look like to to come to him to receive that grace? Well, look at verse 7. It says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Okay? Now, what is he talking about here? What's, what's resist the devil? What does the devil have to do in this text about these passions that are waging war within that are the cause for our bitterness and our anger and our hatred? What does fleeing the devil have to do with this? Well, if you think about the devil... Devil is the father of lies. God is the God of truth. And so when he's saying here to resist the devil, he's saying, don't believe the devil's lies, but rather believe the truth of God. Submit yourself to God and to his truth and flee from falsehood. Flee from these lies that you're believing that is causing you to place these desires, these good desires, to a level where there are now demands. This is going to happen when we're believing lies, whenever these demands get elevated. We're going to think, well, I need this. I need this. Not God, I need these things in order to make me happy, in order to fulfill me, in order to make life go well, in order, in order to, to see the things I want to see happening. I need these things. We're believing the lies of the devil that God's word and his truth is insufficient. We believe the lie that the world serves me. 
We believe the lie that it's my convenience that's most important. We believe the lie that we're so special and that other people should recognize our specialness. That's what we believe, and it's a lie of Satan. We believe the lie even that God should bow to our demands. How many people do you know that use the Bible and use God just almost like a genie to fulfill their own desires? And again, that's the lie of the devil. He says to flee from this, resist the devil, resist these lies, but rather believe that this, this world and we as individuals are made for God's glory. We're made to submit ourselves to God. We're made to give honor and thanks and glory and worship to him. And so he calls us in verse 8 to 10 to, to mourn, to weep, to be broken over our sin and to turn to God and to purify our hearts in his truth. Okay, so that's the, that's the remedy. That's what repentance is looking like. And now you're probably thinking, okay, that's, that's good. Uh, beginning to see some of that, but how, how practically do we do that? How practically do we do that? How, how, do we, how do we, you know, once we identify these angers, how do, how do we, we reject Satan's lies? What, what lies am I believing? What truth do I need? How, how do I do that? On the sheet on the back table as you go out today, uh, if you picked up one of the sheets last week, this is overcoming anger at the top. It had three columns in the table. So this is a journaling exercise, okay? A diary of sorts, an angry, anger diary. Um, and so on these, the sheet this week, there's four columns. Okay, the first one was, uh, the circumstance or the situation. What happened that produced anger, that caused anger in your heart, whether that was a visible display or just internal? Okay, what happened? And, the, and then the second column was, what was your behavior? What did you do in that circumstance? The third column was, what are your desires? What are those things that you were wanting, that you were denied or that was delayed or was taken away from you, okay, that caused that anger? And this week, there's a fourth column. Okay, and this is what we're talking about in repentance. What's, the fourth column is God's truth. What is the truth that I need to know from the scriptures that's going to help me get my desires in check? What is, it, what is the lie of Satan that I'm believing when these desires have been elevated? And what is the truth of God that I need to know in order to see real change and real repentance? When I seek God, what is it that I need to be humble to as I turn towards him? And so that's going to be different for uh, different people. But that's essentially, um, it's going to help us flush through some of these ideas. And that fourth column is really key for how we are to submit to God and to purify our hearts with his truth. Okay, so anger is going to reveal sinful desires. Okay, desires that for good things that have been elevated. Anger is going to reveal that. We must be broken over anger, must see it for what it is, rebelling against God. We must repent, turn to God, owning our sinful desires, taking responsibility for them, and then turning to God's truth. You know, in the midst of confessing our sin, asking for God's forgiveness, asking for his transforming grace, and then resist the lies of the devil. Okay? Proverbs twenty eight thirteen says this whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. That's what this passage is talking about to some greater detail. Okay, so so going back to our story of hardworking husband, how does this play out in his story? Okay, what, what does true repentance look like in his case? Okay, so hardworking husband came home and he had these demands for appreciation and respect, and they had turned into these you shout 
type of commands. When I come in the door, you shout, greet me in a warm manner. The children shall stop playing and give daddy a hug. And so when he entered into his home, it was almost like it was, it was his kingdom. He had his laws, his expectations. So it was, it was king, daddy is here. You guys need to respect and honor the king. Okay, that was his attitude. Now, how does, how does repentance play into that? Well, he needs to turn to the truth of scripture, confess his sin, turn to God for forgiveness, transforming grace, and then begin to uproot those sinful desires and realize, I'm not called to be king daddy. I'm called, according to Ephesians chapter 5, to love my wife as Christ loved the church and Christ laid down his life for the church. I'm called to go in there and to sacrifice myself in self-sacrificing love. And, and it's not a matter of, I'm only going to love her if she gives it in return. Because how, how did the church love Christ before he gave his life for it? Enemies of God. Haters of God. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. That's the love that husbands are called to give. That's the truth of scripture. Okay, the lie of Satan is, you're the king. You're the ruler of the household. Everyone must acknowledge you. The truth of scripture is you're like Christ to the church. You come in there and you lay down your life for your wife and for your family. So you need, need to know that truth. Meditate on that truth. You need to remember that God is king. And what your wife needs is a godly husband. And what your children need is a godly father. And so when that man comes in the door, that hardworking husband comes in the door, no longer is it king daddy is here. It's servant daddy is here. I'm coming here to lay down my life. I'm coming here to serve. I'm coming here to love self-sacrificially. Now, is, is, is that hardworking husband, when he comes in with that attitude, immersed with the truths of Ephesians 5, the truth of God, when he comes in there, is he going to blow up in rage when he doesn't get the, the hellos from his wife and his children? No, he's not. Because the root of anger has been ripped up and he's changed his mind. He's a servant. He's no longer the king of that household. That's repentance. That's repentance. The second text I want to look at this morning, uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. So the first R in uprooting the roots of anger is repentance. And we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and look at the second R, reconciliation. Reconciliation. Ephesians 4, I'm going to read from verse 17 down to the end of the chapter. Okay, there's, there's two verses here that talk about anger. So we're going to start in verse 17, read to the end of the chapter. Longer passage of scripture, so do your best to, to be attentive as I read through it, as we consider reconciliation as a grace given to us by God to uproot anger in our life. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17. Now this I say in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. What's that truth? Here, verse 22, to put off your old self, 
which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires. In verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, there's a principle. Put off, put on. Now, he says, therefore, in verse 25, he's going to explain it, apply it. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, We, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Let, let, let not, sorry, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Okay, we need to understand this text in its context in order to understand its remedy for the issue of anger, how we uproot anger. Okay, we saw as we read verse 17 down through verse 24 that Paul is calling on the Ephesian church to put off old habits, deceitful desires that are creating all kinds of sin, put that off and rather put on what is righteous, what is pure, what is good, what is according to Christ. Okay, put off, put on. It's it's the same idea as repentance. We turn turn from and we turn to. Okay, now now see how he applies this. Look at verse 25 again. He talks about falsehood. He says in verse 25, We're to put away falsehood, okay? Put away speaking lies. And what are you going to put on? Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, okay? And so you've heard it before, you know, if you have nothing good to say, then then don't say anything at all. Well, that's half right, okay? A full biblical truth is rather say something that's going to build up your brother. Speak truth, not just don't speak lies. Put that away, but also put on speaking truth, it says in verse 28, look at verse 28. He says, put off, let the thief no longer steal. Okay, don't steal, put that off, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Okay, so don't steal, stop doing that. That's one aspect, but then you have to put on, and what you need to put on? Working hard with your hands so you have something to share. So it's not just enough to stop stealing. But rather, you now need to work hard so you can give. Okay, that's the the put off and the the put on that we see in this text. Verse 29. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths. That's put off. Don't do that. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Okay, so don't speak corrupting talk. But don't just be silent. Speak what is good. Speak what is in love. Because it's going to build up. What's going to give grace? Okay, so you see this pattern in this text of, of putting off and putting on? Now, he's going to apply that to anger. Okay? So what does it mean to put off anger? And what do we need to put on? Now, before we get to the verse 31 and 32, which deals with, with anger, 
He mentions it in verse 26 and 27. Let's look there for a second. Verse 26 and 27. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Right? The first thing I want to mention here too is James 4, dealing with anger. Ephesians 4, dealing with anger. Both have mentioned the devil. This is serious. Anger is something serious. Anger is going to be used by Satan to create all kinds of havoc in your own life and in the life of other people. Okay? Serious. <clears throat> He says here, be angry. Okay, command to be angry. All right, we didn't expect that. Command to be angry? What is he getting at here? Okay, this, when he says be angry and sin not, he's not talking here about be sinfully angry, but just do not sin in your sinful anger. Does that make any sense? He's talking here about, about righteous anger, in that there is a place for anger. God's anger is a righteous anger. The anger of Christ was a righteous anger. It's possible for us to have righteous anger and we should be indignant at the things that offend and seek to destroy God or to tarnish His name. There's a place to be angry. But he says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let that expression of anger... You know, it's, it's one thing to be angry at abortion. The practice where a doctor... Who's, who's signed an oath to care for people, where he goes in there with his instruments and rips a baby part limb by limb and then crushes the skull and vacuums it out and then, then uses a small table to make sure all the parts are there. That's evil. That's wicked. It's murderous. That should make us angry that such a thing goes on. Even in our own city, 6,000 babies are murdered that way every year here in southern Alberta. Every year. That should make us angry. Yet we should not sin. It doesn't mean we should go into an abortion clinic and start shooting it up or, or do other forms of violence. Okay? That would be wrong. Be angry and do not sin. He also tells us don't let our anger linger in verse, um, verse 26. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Okay, don't maintain that spirit of anger because the devil is going to use that to destroy us. Okay, so we're supposed to put off unrighteous anger and unrighteous expressions of anger and rather put on righteous anger, but do not sin as we do that. Okay, now I want to jump down to verse 31 and 32 because these verses as well give us more detail. Okay, he calls us to, to be angry in verse 26, but then in verse 31, he says, let all anger um, be put away from you. Okay, so we understand that there's two kinds of anger he's getting at. So let's look at verse 31 and 32. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Okay, that's to put off along with all mad- malice. And what's to put on? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Okay, verse 32 is so often given on its own. It's a great verse to memorize. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We kind of leave that verse on its own, but that verse really goes with verse 31. That's part of the same put off and put on that we see in this chapter. Put off anger, but rather put on kindness and gentleness and forgiveness. That's why I said this, the second R here that we're after besides repentance is, is reconciliation. 
this idea of, of forgiveness and reconciling differences between one another. Now, what's the relationship between anger and then forgiveness? What's the relationship between anger and then reconciliation? Well, consider this. Anger wrongly seeks to achieve what reconciliation rightly accomplishes. Okay? Anger wrongly seeks to achieve what reconciliation rightly accomplishes. So often in our anger, we're seeking something. Even though we're not thinking of it consciously. We're seeking something in our anger. Okay, when something is, is taken away from us, denied or delayed, then we make a judgment that is, not, that is wrong, that is not right, that is not fair, and we get angry and we express that anger. And so often that anger, that expression of anger is seeking to achieve something. It's seeking in some cases to hurt that offending party so they understand just how much we've been hurt. And so I'm going to hurt you through my expression of anger so that you won't do that again. So you know that is wrong. You do not do that to me. And so I'm going to let you have it so that way you won't do that to me again. Okay, we don't, we don't think that. We're not thinking that. But that's just naturally what comes out as we express anger. We tear a strip off our children so that next time they won't dare to do what they just did. Okay, or maybe more commonly we give our spouse the silent treatment. I'm not telling you what you did, but I'm just gonna I'm just gonna be silent. I'm just gonna give you the cold shoulder. I want you to, to feel bad. I want you to, to wonder about how you hurt me, and so you won't do it to me again. Anger seeks for the other person to change or seeks for circumstance to change. Okay, when we have those columns in that sheet, it's seeking for that first column, these circumstances, it's seeking for that to change. Completely ignoring what's in the heart. Now, what do the scriptures say? What's the truth of God? James 1.20 says this. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. One of the lies that we believe so often is that our anger is going to produce righteousness. That when we blow up, that's going to cause other people to get in line. And it's going to make, make the situation better. How many times, when it's been really noisy, have you yelled, be quiet. Okay, do you, do you see the irony? Yelling for quiet. Okay, and we do that so often. We want, we want our kids to, to behave and to stop fighting and we begin yelling at them to, to knock it off. All right, and, and again, we're entering in on that same quarrel, but because we're, we're stronger, we're bigger, we got a lot of voice, we do it. And we're seeking to achieve righteousness change through our anger. And the Bible says, no, it's not going to work. So we need to believe God. Anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Being louder, inflicting pain, either with words or physically, or giving people the silent treatment, holding grudges or, or being bitter, will not achieve the change that you seek. It will not produce the, des- the results that you're after. It will not. God has says he's going to oppose that. He's going to oppose the proud. He's not going to let it happen. But verse 32 tells us what is going to accomplish change. Reconciliation, kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness. That's the answer to the change that we're after, that our anger is seeking to produce. Consider a husband who has forgotten to do the chores just one too many times. Um, he promised his wife many times that he would do it, but he's forgotten again. Or consider the husband who's failed to lead his family spiritually in family devotions and worship, keeps on 
saying he's going to do it, but he never really is consistent. Or, or consider the wife who, who constantly complains to her husband. In all these situations, there can be anger and frustration between these two parties. We must resist the lie that our anger is going to achieve the results that we want. Okay, so imagine again the, the husband who's been derelict in his duties to lead his family and family devotions. Okay, he said, he said many times, I'm going to do it, but he, it always falls off and trails off. Now, anger in that case is not going to produce the righteousness of God. If the wife comes in there, and I heard, we heard this in a sermon recently, the wife comes in there and, 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 he, and she says to her husband, why do we hate your family? Why do you hate us? Hmm? Do, do you hate us that much that you wouldn't lead us in family worship? Are you that lazy? Do you, do you that not care about us? You know, all this Bible that you read, is that, is that even relevant to you? Okay, is that going to produce righteousness in him? Everything within him is going to go, oh, he's going to want to lash back. Okay, or what about the, the wife who's complaining, constantly complaining to her husband and, and, and he's going to deal with it again with, with anger and frustration and, and he comes home and she's complaining to him again and he's had a long day at work. He's been working hard. And he goes, wife, what did you do all day? I've, I've been working hard. I'm tired from working. And let me get this straight. You're tired from sitting here on the couch? Hmm? Now, is that going to produce the righteousness of God in her? Is that going to produce the change that that, that frustration is so desperately seeking? Compare that to this with that husband who's not leading his family. His wife comes up to him and says, Honey, can I speak to you? I know that you love me. I know you love the children. I know you love the Lord. I know that we also wanted to, to be consistent in our family devotion. Is there a way I can help you with that? Can I, can I get the kids um, ready earlier? Can I, is there some way that we can help work on this together? Now, how is that going to be received versus the, do you hate, my, do you hate your family? Okay. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Okay? Harsh word stirs up anger. Going back to that hardworking husband who desired for his family to love and respect him. That's what he wanted. To give me the respect and the honor that I'm due. That's what, that's what he desired. Now, as, as he puts off his king daddy hat and puts on his servant hat, da, daddy hat, and as he loves his family self-sacrificially, he's going to find that through that process of being kind and gentle and loving to this family, that he is going to receive their appreciation. He's going to receive their respect. He's going to receive their loving kindness. Not because he's sitting there demanding it, but because rather he's pursued it God's way. You're not going to experience those things as an angry dictator, but as following God's truth, God is going to work on all of our hearts to bring that reconciliation and those kind words. Now, how is this possible? How can we speak the truth kindly? How can we seek reconciliation when someone has so frustrated us, someone has done something to us that has so angered us and they've done it again and again and again? How can I keep speaking kindly to them? How can I forgive them? How can I approach them in a gentle way well, the key is at the end of verse 32. Look at the end of verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is what we need to remember. We need to remember that God, through the death of Christ, has made a way to forgive our angry hearts. 
that our anger is forgiven, our bitterness, our resentment, our frustration is forgiven as we come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're an angry person, a selfish person, Christ forgives angry and selfish people. He's taken that that penalty for your anger. He's taken that penalty for your selfishness and he's put it on his own shoulders and he's died in your place so that you can be forgiven. And he lives and he reigns and he rules to transform you into his image, to do away with it, to purge away that anger, to clean you. Christ has done that for you. For those who have come to him in repentance faith, who come to him as, as Lord and as Savior. And if you haven't done that, you need forgiveness for your anger. You need forgiveness for your frustration and your bitterness and resentment. If you do not come to Christ as one of his disciples, you have no forgiveness. But for those who come to Christ in that manner, who call out to him as Lord, who believe in what he's done at the cross, we know we are forgiven. Because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins for those who confess our sins. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful to do it. He will do it. And knowing that, experiencing that forgiveness for our own anger. How then can we withhold forgiveness for those who have hurt us? Who have defied us? Who have caused pain to us? Who have caused us frustration and bitterness? How can we fight for our rights and for our kingdom and for our demands when God has graciously forgiven us? When he has graciously brought us into his own kingdom, not because we satisfied all of his demands and his commands, we've broken them. But he's brought us into his kingdom through the shed blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. And now we sit there as our own kings and make our demands and want everyone to follow our laws. It's not the way that God works. It's not what God has done to you. God's forgiven you. He's brought you into his kingdom. Not on your own merits. Because of his own blood. Must we take revenge and revile and be angry and bitter when Christ suffered in our place rather than destroying us? He didn't take revenge on us. He didn't revile against us. Rather, he sacrificed himself for us. Will we continue to use harsh words when Christ speaks so softly and gently to us? We need to let the forgiveness and the grace of God melt our hearts of anger. We need to live for his kingdom, not our own. We need to remember the gospel to uproot the deep roots of anger. Let's pray.